Thank you, worship team. You may be seated, everyone. Let's have Red and I and the family come up here. We want to pray for them. We want to bless them as they uh, embark on this sabbatical here. And it's just good. This is really a wonderful uh, family cultural moment for us because, um, you know, throughout our 30-year history at New Life, we've had uh, seasons where pastors and senior staff go on sabbatical. In uh, his tenure as a senior pastor, Pete went on three sabbaticals. Peter Roden went on a couple of sabbaticals. I'm in the process of planning for my sabbatical. Amen. I, I can't wait. Uh, and, um, and so every seven years or so, um, senior staff go on a sabbatical. And so um, sabbaticals are extended Sabbaths. We believe in weekly Sabbaths every seven days to stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. And that principle is extended as we think about the years. And so every seven years, pastors um, uh, you know, at New Life stop, rest, delight, contemplate. In addition to that, are retooled for the next season. And so Red is not just going out to get a tan and uh, have a good time there. Uh, we want him to have that. But it's also uh, to discern, and we've done a lot of work of discerning, where are the areas of development for Red? That Red is going to be researching and developing for the sake of our community at New Life. And so Red is going out, not just for his own rest, he's going out to be retooled so that when he comes back, um, he can lead us in a particular way in a particular area. And one of the areas that Red is going to be focusing on is on uh, church multiplication as we think about uh, potential new churches, as we think about small groups throughout the, the, the city here. Red has a wonderful apostolic gifting on him and anointing on him. And this is a way of cultivating that and developing that for the next season. And so we want to pray for them and for Aya, for Amber, for Violet, that God would give them deep rest, that God would speak to them, and that they would come back with fresh vision for their own lives, and God would uh, join them together as a family in this season as well. So why, why don't you extend your hand uh, out to Red? He'll be back here. They'll be back in uh, mid-August. And we want God to deposit into them everything the Holy Spirit wants to for this season. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for Red. Thank you for Aya, for Amber, for Violet. Lord, we pray in this sabbatical season that you would give this family, and Red in particular, deep rest. Lord, may they experience your grace, your love, your power in a way that they haven't before. And Lord, as Red thinks about the next phase of leadership and development and what gifts he can bring to the New Life family and to Elmhurst and to Queens and to the world at large, Lord, would you speak to him empowerfully? Would you connect him to the right people? And Lord, may he come back with a fresh vision as to what you're calling him to do and how his gifts are to be manifested in this local church family. And so, Lord, we commit them to your grace and we bless them in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3, the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We have been on a series looking through Ephesians. And before we get there, this coming Saturday, we have a men's breakfast every month or so. We have a gathering uh, for the men. And I'm going to be speaking at that event next, this coming Saturday from 9 to 11. It's going to be a wonderful time. So, um, fellas, you can sign up for that today or online. Um, it's going to be a really just wonderful gathering there. We are in a, thank you, we are in a series um, called Eastertide, Practicing Resurrection. And uh, we called it Eastertide. The, the church for years has celebrated uh, this season of Easter seven weeks after 
uh, the resurrection because it's not just a one-day thing. It's a season. And so, you know, we celebrate that Jesus is alive. And so let's practice here. He is risen. I don't know if he's risen in now with that confession. Let's, 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 let's say it like we, he is risen. Yeah, he wasn't just risen on Easter Sunday. Okay, he's still alive. He's still alive. And so Eastertide is celebrating the resurrection and how we can practice and live out of that reality. And so we've been focusing on three words, three verbs, sit, walk, stand. For the past three weeks, we've been focusing on the sit portion. What does it mean to be seated? We're going to spend some time talking on the walking portion right now. And so we'll be in Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 3 and the beginning of Ephesians 4. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to make a connection with some verses that um, I'm not sure if we've all typically approached the verses like that. So I, I'm hoping to give a fresh angle to a very familiar passage of Scripture. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, your presence in this place. Thank you for the gift of uh, mothers, biological and spiritual mothers. And Lord, we pray your blessing over every woman in this room. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, and receive what you want us to receive as we look through this book of Ephesians. And so we offer this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. This past week, I was reading an article on what your walk says about you, what your walk says about you. And it described different ways that we walk, different ways that we walk. Uh, one type of walking was what they called the power walk, someone who just, they know where they're going. They're decisive. They have an agenda. You can't deter them. You're just focused. They called it, you know, the power walk. You're walking down the street because you know what you need to do, and you're going to do it. They talked about the fast walking. Someone, this is you in Manhattan, you don't even know where you're going, but wherever you're going, you're going there fast. And you're on time, but you're still walking fast. You're early, you're still running up the stairs. It's this New York City way. We are fast walkers. I created my own category of walk. I call it just the, the gangster walk. It's just the gangster walk. And so uh, this is my favorite kind of walking. Uh, growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, you had to walk like this. And so you had to walk with a little bop. You know, you're walking down the street and it just you just had to have the bop. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I never I, I never forgot, forgot that my first day I was working as a mailroom guy in a municipal bond company, and I'm just a mailroom guy pushing the cart, but I had the bop going. I'm just pushing the cart, you know, I'm just I'm doing my thing. And I never forget, some white guy came up to me and said, Rich, is there a problem with your leg? Is there a problem with your leg? And I said, oh, I better change the way I walk in this area. So I just started just walking like this from now. You know, just walking. <laughs> had to change the walk real quick here. And so there's the... The gangster walk. And then there's like the distracted walk that we all are familiar with. You're walking down Queens Boulevard and somehow you're still texting. Got to get that text through. And we are distracted walkers. Now, in the Bible, walking is a metaphor for the Christian life. And while there might be different ways of walking in the world and physically and all that, there's only one way to walk spiritually. And in this respect, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is deeply concerned about how the church walks and so we are to take inventory, as it were, of our walking. And what we're going to see in Ephesians is this, uh, this idea that it's not enough to be seated with Christ. We are called to walk like Christ. It's not enough to be seated with Christ. We are called to walk like Christ. This is what First John gets at when he says, whoever claims to live in him must live, must walk as Jesus did. If you belong to Jesus, it's not enough to just get 
in, uh, in fire insurance out of hell and into heaven. We are to walk like Jesus did. And this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, because there's, there's a very familiar passage of Scripture that many of us have memorized. Many of us know this verse. Many of us, it's the first verse that we've memorized. I want to read it to you, and I'm going to connect it to chapter 4 and show you a different angle as what I believe this passage is really about here. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, hear the word of the Lord. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We remember the verse by saying, unto him who is able to exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. And so Paul ends chapter 3 with that and then he goes into chapter 4 with these words. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, not a little bit humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As we've been mentioning, the book of Ephesians has three essential sections here, sit, walk, and stand. And we began a couple of weeks learning that the Christian must first be seated with Christ, that you can't learn how to walk like Christ or stand for Christ if you haven't been seated with Christ. And the, the way of the world is much different. The world says you have to walk first and stand, and then you can sit after you're tired and exhausted. The Christian life doesn't begin with walking. The Christian life doesn't begin with standing. The Christian life begins with being seated. We have been seated with Christ. And that language of being seated is language of status, is language of significance, is language of stability. And we've learned that when we sit down, we just don't sit down to enjoy the view. We sit down because God has given us something to do. God has given us a particular purpose. And we don't just sit alone. We To be raised with Christ is not an individualistic thing. It's a communal thing. And so to be raised and seated with Christ, the image is not us on a chair hanging with Jesus just by ourselves. That's not the image. That's the, that's the image of American spirituality, of American religion, where it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. I don't need the church later for the church. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. Me and Jesus are just going to have a good time. And this is the image. I'm seated with Christ. I got a good view. No one's there to bother me. And that is it. But we have to always remember that although our Christian life is deeply personal, it's never private. It's deeply personal, but it's never private. And so to be seated with Christ, it's not an individualistic image like that. To be seated with Christ is a communal image. uh, word, and it looks more like this. You're around a table seated together. I don't know who that family is, but I just, I just, I just grabbed the picture there. And so we, we are seated, joined together at the table. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is hard work because you don't get to choose who sits next to you. Okay. In the kingdom of God, we don't get to choose the table. 
and you don't even get to choose where you sit. You are seated with Christ, and whoever's with Christ is seated with you. And you can make a decision whether they should be there or not. And so we're joined together, and this is not something that we are always comfortable with. And in the New Testament, it is not something that the church was necessarily comfortable with either. We are joined together in Christ, whether we like it or not. And Christ holds us together even when we don't like it. Now, I, I saw this image here of two kids fighting with each other and the punishment that their parents have been giving. And there's been a movement of this called the Get Along T-shirt. And uh, they're, just, they're, just, they're just, yeah, our Get Along shirt. Yeah, we're just, this is, you're going to be together whether you like it or not. And uh, don't they look so happy? Look, they're just thrilled. And, and, you know, whether you like it or not, you stuck together. And Jesus, as it were, is that T-shirt that holds us together. That you might not like the person you're sitting with, but it's irrelevant in the kingdom of God. We have been joined together. And this is what Paul is getting at. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, what we learned last week, that there was a mystery that was hidden for thousands upon thousands of years. And the mystery was staggering. And the mystery was this, that Jews and Gentiles were now one family. We're joined together in Christ. Now, because we're 2,000 years removed from when Paul wrote this in Ephesians, it really doesn't make any difference to us. We hear Jews and Gentiles together, and we go, meh, you know, whatever. That's, that sounds pretty nice. But when people heard that in the first century, their jaw would have dropped. Huh? Jew and Gentile. It would have messed up their equilibrium. They would have been disoriented. They would have been shocked. They would have been surprised to hear the language that the mystery is that Jews and Gentiles are joined together in one family. There would have been a collective gasp. And many, maybe it's helpful for us to get some modern day image to help us understand the collective gasp that people would hear. What if Paul used political language and said, here's the mystery that's been hidden for all ages, that in Christ, Republicans and Democrats are now just one. <laughs> we go, what? It's impossible. Because you see the hostility, you see the shouting, you see the anger, you see the vitriol, you see the trouble out there. We go, that, that, no, that, that's impossible. You say, in Christ, the, there's, the Mets and the Yankees have joined together in one. No way. That's the, you know, exactly. That, that's the kind of, of visceral, you're feeling it in your bones. When they heard Jews and Gentiles were joined together in Christ, they would have been shocked. And so Paul says, this mystery is staggering. And this is what he writes in chapter 3. And then he ends chapter 3 with these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power, which is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we typically quote that verse, we quote it as a personal verse. We quote it out of a personal circumstance. We're in a trouble and we go to the Bible and we say, God can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that I ask or think. And of course God can do exceedingly and abundantly. Of course God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. But when Paul wrote that, he wasn't thinking about our individual lives and God doing something for us. When Paul wrote that, he was talking about the immeasurable power of God to join people from two different walks of life into one new family. That is more than we can ask or imagine. 
That God, he, exceedingly abundantly, not just for your personal life, God has, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, has joined together people who would typically have nothing to do with each other, and he's joined them together into one family. That's the exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, which is good news for all of us because all of us, to one degree or another, have strained relationships, don't we? We have uh, relationships that have been fractured. Relationships that are in a bad place. And sometimes we wonder, can God bring healing to our relationship? Can God bring healing to our marriage? Can God restore this parent-child relationship? Can God restore a relationship with a best friend that has gone astray? Can God restore something? When Paul says, Ephesians 3.20, he's saying, God can do above and beyond all that we ask or think. Pertaining to what? Pertaining to the joining of people that are been separated and hostility, something has been joined together. And so Paul now, he ends chapter 3 talking about the mystery, talking about God bringing together people beyond our wildest imagination. He writes about our position in Christ, our status in Christ, the reconciling power in Christ. And now Paul gets to talking about what does this mean for us as we live, as we walk. Something has happened in the first three chapters. This is what has happened. Now God, Paul is saying through, God is saying through Paul, now there is a particular way, a particular demand that God makes of us. And we don't like that word demand, don't we? God makes a demand. If you belong to me, he demands that we live and walk in a particular way. And what is happening in the church was this church had a status with God, but their lives denied that reality. In other words, their walking didn't match their sitting. And this is what Paul begins to address. Now, when Paul writes a letter, whenever you see one of the letters in the Bible of Paul, these are not just random thoughts of Paul just thinking one day and going, oh, I'd like to share this with this church here. They're very specific words. And what would typically happen is this. We'd, let's say we, we were all a church here, and we, we are a church, and they would gather together in this fighting, and we see something happening on Facebook, and brother so-and-so says something to sister so-and-so on Facebook, and one of the leaders say, we need some advice this church is going crazy. We need help. And so I send Paul an email. I write Paul a letter. Paul, there's some crazy stuff happening in our church and on social media. God, we need some wisdom. Paul would get the letter. Paul would then write a response and say, this is how you're supposed to live in light of what you've told me. Now, we don't have the letters that Paul received, but we have the letters that Paul responded with. And in that letter, we get a sense as to what the problems were in that church. And one of the problems was they were seated with Christ, but they were not living that reality out. And so in beginning of chapter 4, Paul begins by saying, therefore, therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore in the, in the scriptures, a good Bible principle is wherever you see a therefore, you need to ask the question, why, why is a therefore therefore? Okay. Why is it therefore therefore? For. It's always connected to a previous context. The previous context is there's been a mystery. God has joined people together. In light of this mystery and the fulfillment of it, there is a therefore. And Paul's saying that therefore is how we are supposed to walk in the world. 
He says, you are to live a life worthy, walk in a way that's worthy of the calling you've received. Now, Paul wrote this because he heard discouraging news. And for whatever reason, they were not living a life worthy of the calling they've received. And hasn't this been the problem for the church for over 2,000 years? We don't walk in a way that matches our sitting. This is why one of Gandhi's famous quotes is so convicting. Gandhi, whenever missionaries would come to see Gandhi, Gandhi would say these words, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And if we're honest, we go, yeah, that's right. That's about right. That's about right. That, 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 that's about right there. Christians are both the greatest reason someone will come to know God and the greatest reason someone will reject God. And we demonstrate a fundamental disconnection with our sitting and our standing. And Paul's saying it's not enough to be seated with Christ. We must also walk like Christ. Our living must be of equal weight to our calling. Our walking must be consistent with our sitting. And the question is, what is the call? He says, work, live a life worthy of the call you've received. Now, when I read that Bible passage growing up, I would always interpret that verse, Ephesians 4.1, live worthy of the calling you've received as an individual thing. I'm a pastor. I need to live a life worthy of the call to be a pastor. I'm a Christian. I need to live a life worthy of the call to be a Christian. But when Paul writes that, when we look at what just happened in Ephesians 3, we see what the call is. The call is not just your life and your personal walk. The call is we need to be a particular kind of community together. And so in Ephesians 2, he says, what's the call? You are called to be one new humanity. You are called to be one new temple. You are called to be one new body. We're called out of the world into a new community called the people of God. And so our calling is not an individualistic one. It's a communal calling. The way that we are together and the way that we respond to each other and love each other, that is our calling together as the people of God. And so when people see us on social media and see how Christians respond to each other on social media, we are to be mindful that we have a calling out in the world to demonstrate something of the kingdom of God. That the way I love my brother and love my sister, even the brother or sister I don't agree with or really disagree with, the way that I interact with them is my calling. Not just I'm called to preach and I'm called to make a lot of money and I'm called to do this and I'm called to evangelize. It's how we are connected to one another. That is our fundamental call. And so Paul says your walking must connect with your calling. And your calling is you are to live out this mystery that you have been joined together. And now Paul gets very specific. He says you are to now be joined and this is how... You walk it out, as the song says. All right. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. In other words, you you can't just pray this into yourself. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, the key word that I'd argue that Paul is getting at is the word unity. That's the end goal that Paul has in mind. How are we to walk? We are to walk in unity. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, oh, no, unity. The things Christians 
are not really known for is unity. We're not really known to be united. We have thousands of denominations. We see a Christian, we see a Catholic, go, I don't think that person, that person's going to hell. <laughs> we see the Orthodox, uh, I don't even know what they're doing over there. And we, we don't know how to have unity. And as a matter of fact, we divide over the smallest stuff. So when Paul says be united, ah, we're not really good at it. It reminds me of a, I shared this maybe a year ago. There was a guy who talked about uh, why Christians or how Christians divide over the smallest things. And he, sh- he shared this joke that said, you know, I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. And so I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. And the man said, why shouldn't I? He said, where's there so much to live for? Like what? He says, well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Oh, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Oh, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Oh, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Oh, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed them off the ledge. (laughs) That we Christians, we divide over the smallest thing. We're not really known for unity. But when Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he's saying something staggering has has taken place in the resurrection. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is putting the world back together. Heaven and earth are being joined together. God and humanity are being reunited together. Jew and Gentile are coming together. There is a unity that is being established. And in Christ, we have been united. And here's the good news. We don't have to create the unity. We don't have to make the unity. It's already happened in the spirit. It's already happened. This is what Paul says right after that verse there. He says this, you are one body and one spirit. He doesn't say you are becoming one body. You're on your way to one body. He's already saying something has happened in the spirit realm. You are one body, one spirit, just as God called you to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. That God has created our unity through the spirit and the lordship of Jesus, and actually, this is one of the beautiful things about Christians and Christian experience, that we, we, we can experience a sense of unity even with someone that we just met, but we belong to the same Lord. I remember when I was 18 years old, that same company I worked for that I had the bop and the mailroom and all that there, I, I became a Christian uh, while I worked there, not at the place, but while I was working there. And there was a guy who was a, a, a stockbroker who worked there. And I was the mailroom guy. And whenever I would come by with the, the mail and drop it on the desk there, he was very nice, very kind. His name was Larry. He would say, hey, Rich, and just hi, we, some small talk, what have you. And, but that would be it. There's not much that stockbroker and a mailroom guy have in common. And Larry found out that I had become a Christian. And what began to happen was beautiful. God began to join two people from two 
totally different parts of life and parts of the world together. I was the mailroom guy. He was a stockbroker. I made minimum wage. He made a lot of money. I had to file his commission report, his monthly commission report. And every time, oh, I spent in there. Oh, every, every, every day. Oh, he made that much. I mean, it's going to take me years upon years to make what he made in a month. You know, you know, he was in his upper 60s turning 70s. I was 18 turning 19. He lived in an upperly mobile place in Michigan and in Connecticut. I grew up in East New York. But sometimes he would just come into the mailroom, kind of like the dungeon area. No one comes to the mailroom area. And he'd come. This stockbroker would come with his Bible and just, what well, goes, Rich, with a little, he had his own bop. And he's just, and Rich, can I show you something I learned today? And he'd sit down in this mailroom that no stockbroker would come. And he'd sit down and go, I was reading the gospel of John today. Can I share with you what I learned and I go, yeah, and I'm talking to him, and, and people would pass by and see, why is this stockbroker hanging around with this mailroom guy? Well, something Jesus did something there. And isn't that beautiful that sometimes you can connect with someone from a different part of life, but because we belong to the same Lord, there is something that just connects us in the Spirit, that I just met you, but now you're my brother. I just met you, but now you're my sister. I just met you, but now we are one. And so, listen, we can't make unity. Only God can make unity. But this is what often happens with us. We try to manufacture unity through uniformity. Now, only God can create unity, but we try to manufacture unity through uniformity. And so, I'll be united to you on a condition if you vote like I vote. I'll be united to you on a condition if you believe what I believe. I'll be united to you on a condition that you think what I think. Essentially, if you're like me, then I like you. It's a condition. It's uniformity. This is why I love. There was this um, a woman named Dr. Christina Cleveland. She wrote in her book, Disunity in Christ, these words that I so resonate with. She says, when I first began walking with Christ, I felt an immediate and authentic connection with any other Christian who crossed my path. Orthodox, Catholic, charismatic, Lutheran, evangelical, black, white, Asian, didn't matter. We were family. But something sinister and divisive arose. As I walked with Jesus, somehow my growth had been coupled with increasingly stronger opinions about the right way to be a follower. And then she says these words. I chose to build community with people with whom I could pretty much agree on everything. That is a worldly way of being connected to people. That's a very worldly, anti-Jesus way of being connected with people. And we all, all of us, starting with me first, we need to repent because we have often based unity on uniformity. Who do you connect with. Now, I'm not talking about we don't need shared interests and we don't have similar hobbies and we connect that way, and that's wonderful. But who have you avoided to even enter into any kind of unity because they don't think like you or vote like you or walk like you or talk like you or earn as much money as you do or live in the same neighborhood you do? And so we often make uniformity the prerequisite to unity. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Something has happened. What joins us together is not our shared interest. What joins us together are, are, are not those, the, the things that we are together on. What, what joins us together is baptism. 
So he says, there's one bat- we are joined together because we, together we go into the waters of baptism. And so Christian unity is not based on similarities or shared interest. It's based on baptism. Now, I want you for a moment to come back. Let's think about the Jews and Gentiles in this church. Imagine how difficult this was for a moment. They're totally different people. And God says, you're not one family. Think for a moment of a type of food you, you, you just can't eat. You can't stand a particular food. The way, the texture, the smell, you just cannot stand this particular food. And so I'll never eat that. And yet, God says, um, there's a family. I'm joining you together with them. And this is all that's on the menu. That's it. Go, oh, you get a sense of what was happening with the Jews and the Gentiles. They were totally different. And God said, you're one. When, when the Jews would gather together, they, they'd wash their hands like crazy, ceremonial wash, everything. Gentiles get together, forget about the wash. They just, they just, they just grab the stuff there. Could you imagine? The Jews had a particular theology for thousands of years, and the Gentiles were just ah, making stuff up as they were going. The Jews had specific days you set aside, holy days and Sabbath, and the Gentiles, they're doing whatever they want. But they're in the same house. And Paul says, you, you can't just have your own house. you got to figure this thing out. That's the way of the church. You can't just get up and leave whenever you want. In Christ, you're one. you got to figure it out. Now, this is where we don't, this is where American Christianity, this is why there's such a crisis in American Christianity. Because American Christianity is essentially about consumer-driven church. It's it's have it your way. It's, it's, oh, I don't like that song. I'm going to another church. I don't like that preaching. I'm going to another church. Or I don't like that building. I'm going to another church. I don't like that pastor. I'm going to another church. And it's consumer driven. If I don't like it, I'm going somewhere else. This is why there's a crisis. And Paul's saying, you can't just get up and go to another church. Our churches are much too transient. And people get up, and, and there's so much church hopping, and we're going here, ah, I just, because, and we, we never get rooted enough to allow God to transform us because we haven't had a vision of what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has joined together people who are totally different, and that is to be the new normal. I know you're different, and that's the point. We want heaven and earth to join together. There's a big difference between heaven and earth. And, and we say, I believe in that. But do you believe that God can join you together to someone who votes differently? Oh, no, that's, uh, that, can't, that can't happen. No, no, of course not. And so uniformity is not the prerequisite to unity. And Paul begins to say, no, no, no. There is a way that we are to live to preserve unity. Now, only God can create unity. But what the church does is preserve it. We preserve it. And then he gives three words to describe how do you preserve unity? Let's talk about it, and then we're going to go home and celebrate and all that stuff here. First, he says humility. You preserve unity through humility. And humility is essentially a way of seeing yourself. That if you want to preserve unity in whatever context, in your marriage, with your children, in your school, in a workplace, uh, that to the, the unity is often established to the degree of our humility. And humility is essentially a recognition, an accurate 
recognition of who you are and who you're not. Now, Paul has to write that because we are predisposed to living prideful. And to to have pride is to essentially say, I'm better than you and I know more than you. And so you get an argument with a significant other. Pride says, I know more than you on this. And I'm better than you as well. And Paul says, no, you need an accurate estimation of who you are, that all of us in this room, we're broken people. We have gaps. We have weaknesses. We need to be taught. We need to be teachable. And Paul says, if there's going to be any unity that's preserved, we must have a proper estimation of ourselves and see ourselves as broken people. No matter how large your salary is and all that, we are all broken people. And so Paul says, if you want to preserve unity in the church, we have to walk with humility, teachable, open, broken, recognizing our weaknesses, confessing our weaknesses towards one another, humble. Then he says, you need to learn how to be gentle, gentleness. Now, if humility is a proper way of seeing yourself, gentleness is the right way of seeing another person. And the reality is, um, instead of being gentle, the church is often very violent, in our words, and in our deeds. And so Paul says, to be gentle is ultimately a recognition that the people that you are in relationship with are fragile. We're all fragile. There's a fragility to all of us. And what gentleness does is this. Whenever there's conflict or tension in a relationship, gentleness is an ability to see beneath the hard exterior and the difficult actions to the fragility inside the person. In the same way that if you got a box and it said handle with care, fragile content inside, you're going to hold it very gently and move it over here. God has given us people to handle with care. And often what begins to happen is this. Someone gives you a critical remark. And if we don't take the time to even discern why is this person so critical today or ever, we just return with violence. You, you hit me once, I'll hit you twice. Instead of being gentle. Gentleness asks the question, man, that person is very condescending. That person is very angry. That person is very, uh, you, you know, hard to get around. What must have happened to that person to, for them to build up such a wall like that? That now you're being gentle. You're dealing with them not on the exterior. You're dealing with them on the interior. And Paul says, if we're going to, all the differences the Jews and Gentiles had, if they're going to preserve unity, it meant they must be gentle with one another. And then he says, patience. Bear with one another with patience. And what Paul is saying basically is, none of us have arrived. We are all a work in progress. We are all under construction. And the sooner we recognize we're under construction, the more patient we can be instead of being very impatient with one another. And so Paul says, you want to preserve unity that the Spirit has already created? Exercise humility. Be gentle with one another. And be patient with one another. Why? Because this is how God loves us. God has a patient love. I love how Brandon Manning says it. Brandon Manning says, God loves us not uh, as we are and not as we should be. Because none of us is as we should be. And God loves us anyway. 
And so we are to love others out of the place where God has loved us. And so here, here's a question I want to end my time with, a couple of questions. You know, where have you been unteachable, hard? Where have you been rigid in your life? Where have you been violent? I'm not just talking about you, you're physically. Where have you used your words to hurt others? Where have you been impatient? And when we identify those areas and we ask the Holy Spirit to now just fill us and heal us and cleanse us and empower us, this is the work to maintaining the mystery that has been revealed in Christ's resurrection, that a unity is possible in all of these relationships, as difficult as they are, if we would choose the path of walking like Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's have the worship team come forward. And this was no walk in the park for the church. When you read the New Testament, you see over and over again, they came back to struggles, they came back to tensions, they came back to problems. And yet, over and over again, they were committed to trying again and starting again. And so where, where does the Holy Spirit want to form humility in you in your life today? Where does the Holy Spirit want to form gentleness in your life today? Where does the Holy Spirit want to form patience in your life today? To preserve the unity that's been established in Christ. Lord Jesus, we confess this day that we are often violent people, impatient people, proud people. And Lord, you want to transform us from the inside out so that we together would live a life worthy of the calling we've received to be the people of God. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, in every area of our lives, in our small groups, in our gatherings together, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, would you teach us how to live in humility, how to live with gentleness, how to live with patience, how to live and walk a life oriented towards unity. May we walk like Jesus today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand. Let's sing together. Lord. I want to have the a prayer team come to my left. We have the Lord's table to my right. And we come, we join, we take bread, we dip it in the cup. We are reminded that we come to one table. We're seated together with Christ, raised with Christ. And our lives reflect that. And we have our prayer team to my left. And maybe today, um, you, you know the Holy Spirit wants to do some good work in your heart today. Because maybe those words, humility, gentleness, patience, has not described your life. And you know the Holy Spirit wants to begin to transform you so that we could walk like Jesus walked. If there's anyone who is truly gentle, it was Jesus. If there's anyone who was truly patient, it was Jesus. If there's anyone who is truly humble, it was Jesus. And the invitation of being a Christian is not just so you can get to heaven when you die. The invitation is heaven has come to us in Christ. And we, are, we have the privilege and the opportunity to walk as Jesus walked. And we can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we end our time with prayer for those of you that would like to receive it. Uh, because deep down inside, if you are a follower of Jesus, 
your soul is crying out to live like Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself and wants you to live out a life where you can taste the love of God, the patience of God, the gentleness of God in your own life. So whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, our prayer teams would love to pray for you um, before you leave. And so as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you as is our custom at New Life. It's our posture of our hearts when we lift our hands like that to say, Lord, unless you pour out your spirit, I, I can't walk the way you want me to. It's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so with your hands and your hearts and a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the power of Jesus by walking in humility, by living gently, by living patiently. And may people encounter the love in Jesus, the love of Jesus through your life. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.